Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Um, 21st of June, episode out tomorrow on the 22nd. Uh, we want to return to something that we've talked about. I'm here with Tammy and Andy. Um, hey guys. We, How's it going? How are you guys doing? <laughs> good. Yeah, good. Good enough. Yeah, it's like... I, I read about the Delta variant today. Oh my God. Oh no, Andy. Are you scared about the Delta variant? It doesn't look good. It's here in Washington State, but apparently it's not really the cause of much infection yet. Well, are you worried because of your kid? Yeah, A, the kid is not vaccinated. Right. B, it also doesn't foil this idea that everyone with a vaccine is now safe. Well, I don't. Does it lead to hospitalization for people who are vaccinated? It seems like it doesn't, right? Yeah, I don't think. Mm. I think mild symptoms. (laughs) I don't know. I just don't want it, but yeah. I mean, better yeah. than better to be vaccinated for sure. They the name Delta variant, I will say, just in itself is very ominous. You know. <laughs> well, they switched right because it, it seems like they've renamed the UK one and the Alpha. Right, right. Well, that's because they needed to yeah. resolve this uh, contradiction right. of well, if China virus is, is <laughs> right. racist, the European. Why is the British variant not racist? I'm just like, listen, I can't answer this question for you, but I understand that you do have a point in terms of pure logic. So why don't we just call it the alpha variant or something right. like that? It's just like, now we're on the Delta. We're going to get to like the gamma. Yeah. Which one of us is going to wipe us all out? It's going to be like the Zeta, you know, or the, the Tau. The, isn't Tau one of the Greek letters or something? I only know this through fraternities. fraternities and sororities. Sororities. Oh, yeah. Now it's growing up. The Sigma and the Kappa. <laughs> It'd be funny if they like got through like, uh, you know, they had to cycle and they had to do like two to three letters, you know, so there was like the Delta, Delta, Delta like variant. That. <laughs> yes, the Sigma Nu variant is, is, is upon us. <laughs> Delta, Delta, I think Delta. we'll all be dead by then. <laughs> I think they're called the Tri-Delts. Um, yeah. I Anyway, we don't have to go into that. Um, all right, well. What if it's like the Asian fret, though, that kills us all? <laughs> oh, my God, the Lambdas. <laughs> the Lambdas and, yeah. Yeah. Um, the Landers are the ones that, like, I think it's the biggest Asian frat, and it's the one that uh, they, like, have the most heart. Or they, I don't know what they do anymore, but at some point, they're the ones that were always in trouble for the really harsh hazing rituals. And, like, they would yeah. play this game in California. Like, some kid, I think, was paralyzed or might have died because they would just play these tackle football games. Oh for gosh. hazing, uh, where like someone would have the ball and then everyone would go tackle them in a parking lot or something like that. I just don't get it. Wow. Would you put, I just wouldn't put myself, I don't know. I don't understand these types of, you know, as, as like somebody who is like pretty close to being broish, <laughs> I don't understand these rituals. Just like, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Like, I'm not, like, why would I do that? You know, I, I just have never yeah, understood it. I don't yeah. Know. She's like, no, you can't tackle me in this parking lot, man. You know, <laughs> bro. <laughs> yeah, bro. <laughs> we're not gonna, we're not gonna do it. And like, uh, yeah, it's so weird. Anyway, um, today we want to revisit a topic that we brought up before twice. I don't know why it's so interesting, but I do think it is sort of like the center of a lot of what's happening in the larger culture war, or also just the discourse around a lot of the things that we talk about. And so. 
And I do think it's something that maybe the three of us have a little bit of expertise in, maybe not expertise, but at least like <laughs> opinions, you know. Um, and this is we definitely have opinions. Yeah, we have opinions. And this is a role of history in the way in which everything is discussed. Now, the various permutations of this are very obvious to anyone who pays any attention to the news. There's a larger conversation about critical race theory, you know, like, what does it mean? How do we teach history in our schools? What does a curriculum mean? You know, like, what, like, what sorts of things should we be teaching kids, which, what things should we not be teaching kids? And right now, <clears throat> the way in which this is all discussed is through what history do we tell kids, right? And uh, then in media and in, in television, all these other sort of uh, large mass market cultural products, there's also kind of a reckoning around history as well. Right. Like what are the historical stories that we're going to tell? How do we tell them and how do we represent the images that we put out? Right. And so I don't know. I like you can even talk about Hamilton, for example, as part of this moment. Right. Like uh, like is it meaningful that Lin-Manuel Miranda cast uh, yeah. black and brown people in these roles to ch and turn it into like a hip hop opera, hip hop era? <laughs> <laughs> the first time you said that out loud. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, well, actually, not really. I don't know. There was like a Dracula hip opera at some point. I remember that. Um, I think that's where the term came from. It might have been from this track. I don't remember what year it was, but I do remember it happening. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, uh, I think that is a little bit different than what Lin-Manuel Miranda is being discussed about right now, which is like questions of colorism and yeah. uh, in, in the Heights, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah. um, earlier... Uh, Ishmael Reed, for example, like wrote an entire play for about right. um, how Lin Manuel Miranda was treating history, right? <laughs> yeah. And um, apparently, wrote it at Toni Morrison's house. What? Um, yeah, like she gave him like the space oh to write it in her house. I don't know if that's true. I just read it on Twitter. Oh wow! Okay, <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so probably someone not will true. Someone aggregate this podcast now. What? Maybe. Someone will aggregate this podcast now. And no, no one's aggregating this podcast. It's fine. Um, if they do, I'll show them the tweet, and I'll be like, "You have to disprove the tweet to make it so that I'm wrong." <laughs> you know, that's how Twitter works. Um, okay, so two essays came out recently that I think the big one was by Matt Carp, who is a historian at Princeton um, and uh, someone who should be, I don't know, pretty familiar with people who are on left Twitter, right? I don't know. Yeah. Bernie uh, guy. Yeah. Right? Um, and the second was a interview that was done of Robin DG Kelly, who we've talked about a lot on this podcast, who I think is somebody who we all admire in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. And uh, it was about representations of Tulsa, Black Wall Street and the massacre, right? Which obviously we had the hundred year anniversary of this year and, you know, saw a lot of stuff on, you know, between Watchmen, the television show a year, year and a half ago, all the way up until mm -hmm. like, you know, gigantic features in every single major publication. And so the central question I think that we'll talk about, which, you know, is the one that uh, is just like, what is going on with history now? Is it being used in sort of an unprecedentedly historic, uh, political way? I would say that probably the answer to unprecedented is almost always no. But um, <laughs> is it being used in a political way right now that feels any different than it might have mm -hmm. 10 years ago? And like, what do we make of all of this? So, Andy, you are the historian <laughs> in, out of the three of us. Like, what, yeah. what do you think to this very broad question? Like, do you as a historian find yourself sometimes wondering, like, you know, why is history being discussed so much 
Um, I think I agree with Matt's point, which isn't so much that it's unprecedented, like you said, but that it does seem like U.S. Okay, what's Matt's in point, though? Yeah, yeah. explain that, Matt's point. Yeah, that U.S. history. Or the premise of the essay is U.S. history typically is like the territory, the property of the right. You know, like celebration, right. nationalist celebrations, patriotism, and all that. And it does seem like now it is increasingly uh, being taken up by left liberal liberal left. Um, scholars and activists and journalists in a way that, you know, we, as we know, is being, is threatening to conservatives Mm -hmm. in a way that, yeah, that might be, that might be, um, I do think it's notable um, and over the last decade, I think, and I think we're, we're specifically talking about is U.S. history. And we're talking about the history of from slavery to Jim Crow, like the history Mm -hmm. of uh, black oppression in the United States. Yeah. Um, And that does seem, it does seem like there's a huge uptick of that, um, especially in the public sphere in the last, you know, 10 years or so. Like, I don't know. Do you go to like history conferences and stuff? Like, is this, is this a widely held thought? Like, is, uh, it, is this something that historians discuss? So I was, kind of, I was telling you guys before this, I almost feel like I don't, I'm not even in us history. Like us history is its own thing. It does feel like, and this is probably true of like all countries around the world that, the history of the country that you're living in is like its own special thing because there does seem to be this organic connection to like the citizenship and the government and like us historians have like a pipeline to the New York times and the white house. Um, and I'm in like the rest of the world. So I don't go to like, I don't, I don't participate in those conversations about us history at conferences. It does seem like just as like a observer though, that um, I think I mean, yeah, it's definitely being discussed. Like, and there's definitely been a trend in scholarship towards the history of slavery, in particular, mm-hmm. uh, making a huge, making having a much bigger mark uh, in the field. I don't know what the convers. I don't know if there's like actually like conversations behind the doors about historians debating how good or how bad this is. Uh, but from the outside, it's very clear that this is a trend. Uh, you know, the 1619 Project uh, draws upon a lot of this new scholarship. So there's a direct link between like if for listeners who are obviously not like in the academy, but uh, paid attention to the 1619 project, that is a direct, um, I don't know if byproduct is the right word, but that's a direct like parallel to what's happening um, in the academy. Some of the arguments made in, the, in that project. Right. It's, or it's like an outgrowth or a natural pl- uh, publicization of that type of scholarship, right? Which yeah. uh, I don't think anyone who even worked on the 1619 project would disagree with, right? Like uh, yeah, even no. when Nicole Hannah-Jones has been. Uh, defending, you know, to her many attackers across the board at this point. Right. And she just says, there's a lot of scholarship about this stuff, you know, and um, it seems like a lot of that's going to be laid out in this book that she has coming out. But yeah, it, it's part of like a movement also within the academy that did it predate? It must have predated this, right? Like uh, that the scholarship started coming out. The, off the top of my head, I think there's stuff happening in the early 2010s already. Okay. And this is all, in my head, I think like 2008 is this watershed for like in the real world. And then the, the sort of <laughs> after the ripple effects of that many years later is um, historians looking at capitalism or, you know, economics again. And part of that is looking at slavery and yes. the economics of slavery. And everyone kind of knows that there's these classic works that are you're much older than that, like Eric Williams on capitalism and slavery, Cedric Robinson on black Marxism. So those are old, mm-hmm. 
but they've kind of, they've definitely taken on a new life in the last 10 years as part of, I think, this reckoning with, uh, you know, slavery and racism in the U.S. And I think 08 is the other real life thing. In my mind, it honestly kind of begins with Ta-Nehisi Coates' thing um, in the Atlantic. Was that 2012? Um, what, the case for reparations? Case for which to me felt like there was stuff. There's definitely like, there's definitely stuff before that that I'm not remembering, but that obviously felt like a landmark in terms of right. talking about the stuff. That's, um, that's like where it enters like the mainstream or that's where it becomes like yeah. a larger question. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. that sort of, um, I don't know. As a magazine writer, I'm generally cynical about the power of magazine pieces. That one seemed like it would accomplish what the general, if like you could drop in a laboratory, like this is what I hope a magazine story will do. Like <laughs> yeah, very be. rare specimen. Yeah. Right. In fact, I can't think of any other examples, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because um, that one, I mean, I don't know. I remember reading it and just be like, oh my God, you know, yeah. Um this whole conversation has changed now. And yeah, like, it felt like a, a game changer. What an accomplishment to sort of re redirect all this through the specific of, you know, essentially what is like a housing thing, you know, yeah. I think it changed a lot of the ways in which people think about everything. And my neighbors here in Berkeley talk about redlining all the time, mm. you know, like there's no way they knew what redlining was before, to, mm. uh, before that essay came out. Right. And yeah. it's actually changed yeah. the way in which they think about, the geography of their own city right now, the conclusions that they draw out of it, which I think is part <laughs> of what Matt Carp is writing about here. Right. Um, and what uh, Robin DG Kelly writes about are the question. Right. And now I would just say that, is that really the job of the journalist? You know, I don't know, Tammy, what do you think? Like, you know, like we actually, let's talk about that later once we lay out a little bit yeah. more of what we're talking about. So uh, the first thing I wanted to talk about was this Robin DG Kelly interview that was in truth out and the interviewer was george yancey um and uh it was i don't know i found it to be this great conversation between two people who i think are politically aligned but also who are willing to sort of argue with each other and sort mm -hmm. of you know say things that perhaps they feel like they shouldn't say and so their focus was about tulsa it was about you know 1921 and um black wall street and uh, you know if you read the you will put it in the show notes if you read the interview it is essentially just like well what are we doing here you know like what what's happening with the you know like sort of the relitigation of all of this history and one of the things that start it starts out and I, I don't know if this is even particularly relevant but you know robin dg kelly essentially says like everyone says that tulsa is a secret history that nobody talks about it no one knows about it but in fact uh, it's always been talked about that way, and, <laughs> and <laughs> every five <laughs> and every five years, someone says no one talks about Tulsa, and then they do a whole bunch of Tulsa stuff, and then five years later, they they sort of do it again. Is that I don't know if that's true um, necessarily. I think that might be kind of like you know, if you're yeah. in academic circles, you might know about it, but I certainly did not have Tulsa front of mind before like the last four years or so. Did you? No, it was never taught to me in any yeah. history class. Me neither, but you know, that's another, I mean, we can talk about, we're going to talk about that a lot. All the things <laughs> that I was not taught in US history. <laughs> you know, it, it's like the great defense of this is essentially that it causes people to like think back on their own experiences with learning US history in school. And you're just like, oh my God, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> I was taught a whole bunch of lies. You know? <laughs> Every single, I think I mentioned this on the podcast before, but you know, like our, my seventh grade history teacher, I think said that Vietnam was a tie 
You know? <laughs> I think you mentioned that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like the U.S. has won every war it's been in except Vietnam, right. which was basically a tie. And I was like, right. I was like, and you know, in my head that made sense because I was a yeah. kid, and I was like, oh yeah. Did know, he mean pretty... Korea? Because that's the only one that would actually kind of make sense. <laughs> right. No, he said. Was, the but Vietnam, anyway, the <laughs> Vietnam didn't War even was know a the tie. Yeah, and I was like, oh my god, the Viet. I was like, wow, the U.S. is undefeated. You know. Yeah. They're like, it's like they're zero like one. 12, zero, and one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one draw. <laughs> Controversial draw. Um, okay, so that is not the, um, but you know, the thing that, that Robin DJ Kelly's critique is essentially here, and I'll read some of it, is that like, uh, you know, that basically the focus of Black Wall Street and the way that it's told is essentially like, hey, when you say that like black people cannot generate wealth, Right. When you say that, like, they're not entrepreneurial. Right. When you say that, like, they can't create like middle class and upper middle class sustainable economies and sustainable, uh, sustainable, you know, internal economies, then what you're doing is you're forgetting that, like, in 1921, a white mob killed a whole bunch of people and burned this thing down. Right. And like that was like there was all the things that you say that we can't do but they were suppressed by a white mob and by, you know, white supremacy. I don't think there's any doubting that that's true, right? Like, um, and I find that argument generally too persuasive, but Kelly's critique is, you know, and here I'll read, I'll say, but in telling the story, we focus solely on, quote, Black Wall Street, which made up just a few blocks of the 30 to 40 square blocks of Greenwood, the mobs destroyed Greenwood being the neighborhood in Tulsa. All we really hear about are doctors and lawyers and entrepreneurs, Black-owned theaters, and the luxurious Stratford Hotel, when in fact, the vast majority of Black Tulsans beaten, killed, and displaced were working people. It was the Black working class, the Black poor, who suffered the most. They didn't have insurance, and very, very few of them had means to file suit or make claims, right? And so, like, that's sort of his central argument. She's like, why is it in these types of re... these sorts of, like, relitigations of history, do we take on this focus that is capitalist in sense, right? Like that, and it is about like sort of success economies and success, right? And mm-hmm. I think that the corollary that went immediately to my head is like same, same thing with education, right? Like why do we talk so yeah. much about like places and exclusive places, upward mobility and like, you know, achieving everything that's great. Why do we not talk about the people that uh, suffer the most under these systems, right? Um, I don't know, what do you think about Kelly's critique there, Tammy? Yeah, I really like this essay. Well, it, it's an interview, but it reads more like yeah. an essay. And I think, um, yeah, I, I really agree with that. I thought it was really helpful. I also like that he compared this uh, sort of, I don't know, Hollywood imagery around uh, around Tulsa to Wakanda because I really didn't like that movie. <laughs> and I thought that that movie was really, uh, Black Panther was really problematic in the same way. So anyway, but yeah, I think, you know, he's u- using this to make a broader assertion about um, a history that this is part of the contestation I think that Matt Carp is getting into on the the left and among liberals about like what is the racial history we want to remember about this country and to what extent how how can we incorporate like capitalism critiques of capitalism like in a way that is useful in the in that memory you know or remembering of these events um, and I I liked the fact that I think at one point in the essay he talks about how like a third of the black men were manual laborers you know, in quote unquote, black Wall Street, right? Because it's not just black Wall Street. And like 93% of the women were doing domestic work. So I I just always appreciate the way that 
he brings out these kind of working class histories that are buried. Um, and then, you know, I think the essay then gets really broad and it goes into why CRT is attacked and a little bit of 1619. And um, yeah, so in a way, it's like a really good guide through like the uses and misuses of history, Black history in particular. Right, right. Andy, what, what did you think? What do you think about this idea that like, it's, uh, you know, why do we focus on the rich, yeah. the rich part of it, you know? Yeah, I think he's kind of what he's saying with uh, talk when he begins by saying we already have all these histories. Um, I think he's kind of also saying like the reason the people who are continually excavating it in the last few years are basically celebrities. Yeah, right. Um, and Hollywood versions are, um, yeah, like caricatured versions of it. And um, I honestly haven't actually read, you know, too much about uh, the massacre in 1921, but I am you know, like just being on the internet familiar with the sort of different Hollywood projects around it, which always struck me as exactly um, as he's portraying it, which is basically this kind of celebration of black wealth and sort of like tragedy of the loss of black wealth in a way that was very, um, not just like blind to class, but it's also like reframing, uh, you know, Tammy mentioned critique of capitalism. It doesn't seem to be a, it's a celebration of capitalism. It's saying like capitalism is great. If only we leveled the playing field between black (laughs) and white capitalists, that is how we overcome, you know, achieve emancipation, right? And um, so I think I was happy to read this because that was my gut sense of, that, that was my instinct based on like, just kind of seeing like the advertisements for, you know, XYZ comic book or movie about um, Tulsa. Yeah, I, I think I'm a little more sympathetic towards like the, towards the other side. Although I do agree with Robin Kelly about, you know, just sort of the overall point. But I do think that it is useful to rebut some of those ideas you know about how like uh, and to show a historical example because i think that even if you talk about redistribution of wealth for example you know like i just i guess i'm just thinking about you know like charles murray's new book or something like that right there are books there's there's a large portion of the of the right that essentially believe and i would say that a lot of the center left who believes that like that everything that happens is pathological you know that it happens because of the faults of people you know, like individuals, and then they classify the larger group of individuals as a race, right? And so to they would be like, well, what, why would we give reparations if they're just going to, you know, like you saw it, like all this stuff around welfare queens and stuff like that, right? Like, uh, it's like, it's not a new type of narrative that's out there. And to, you know, I think it does make sense to show that, like, if you redistribute wealth, and it can grow into like a healthy type of economy. Now, in terms of like, what to glorify, that's where I agree with him, where it's just like, well, you know, do we only want to tell the story in this one way? But I do think that the rebuttal in itself is useful. You know, yeah. do you think this serves a different purpose than, you know, holding up Obama or Oprah or someone else who is successful, not in a, like an enclosed solidarity economy? I mean, because I think that's kind of what you're getting at here. Right. Um, I, I do is think it different it's different. From any, okay. Yeah. So, because but, I think that that's all individuals, you know, and I think that this is about like a community and an actual economy that existed, right? And I do think I, I do think in that way it's it's different than just seeing being like there are exceptional human beings within every group who can amass wealth. Like I think most people would agree with that, right? I think most people on the right would not agree that like something like Black Wall Street could exist today, right? That um, and I and I do think in that terms it's like a good rebuttal. And I actually don't think it has that much corollary to some of the stuff that we've said in the past about how like Asian Americans specifically need to focus more on like working class immigrants because like the uh, narratives of the, and you know, Robin Kelly actually goes into this as well in this essay, but that the 
concerns of the upwardly mobile wealthy Asian Americans are completely singular to them, you know, and that it fosters no sense of solidarity. But in that point, you're not really rebutting a narrative about Asian American pathology, right? Yeah. Like there's right. like you're just promoting like these things as being the thing that we care about. And I, I think in that way, it's different. Yeah. But um, yeah, let's just get to that part of the Kelly essay. He, um, he writes, I know this is an uncomfortable topic and I've gotten attacked by folks who believe racism is undifferentiated and every anti-black gesture is equally traumatic. But I deal with quite a number of middle and upper class middle black students who are traumatized by microaggressions of varying degrees. I also teach black and brown students who are transfers from community college, slightly older students often detoured by a year, 18 months or two years in prison. To say that these students are traumatized differently is not to dismiss the traumas that my more privileged students endure. But as I've written elsewhere, perhaps the best way to deal with trauma besides therapy is to engage, think, and struggle collectively. And this requires building a solidarity that's not based solely on seeing the world through personal experience and, quote, affinity, but to build political communities around slash against the trauma inflicted on most of the world. Right. Um, I don't know. Do you, do you, do you, wait, like, Ian, what do you think about this? Like, do you, do you, do you agree with this sort of need to reshift this focus or do you, and do you think that like, uh, the way in which Tulsa has been framed in the past few years by, you know, people in Hollywood or whatever is actually yeah. anathema to this. So is he, here he's saying it's useful to differentiate between privileged and less privileged, but it's also, but, but then he's also saying then we can struggle collectively. Right. Right. I think that the argument is essentially that if we tell these success stories, right? Like yeah. uh, if we frame it around individual success, right. Yeah. And that we don't recognize that some people have had individual success, right? Yeah. But right. we basically say that all racism affects all people of one group exactly the same, right? Yeah. right? And that um, that what has happened in the past is all is the is the birthright and the and the burden of every single person in that group exactly the same, yeah. Right. Yeah. That we do lead to a certain type of bourgeoising. Is yeah. that a term? <laughs> like you know what I mean, right? <laughs> Yeah, is that or is gentrification, that, <laughs> right? <laughs> a gentrification <laughs> of 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 social justice claims, right? Where yeah. um, where the people who have the most power will obviously have the biggest megaphones, and that is where what I see happening. Obviously, I've said it five thousand times yeah. on the show, and also in print. <laughs> that's what I see happening within Asian American community, right? Where um, yeah. that's yeah. why I was so upset by like some of the ways in which like the, for example, Chinese Exclusion Act was used earlier in you know around atlanta where i'm just like all right like what are we doing here yeah. you know um anyway andy yeah to i mean yeah i mean i think the there's a thing we've talked about before how asian like not all racisms are the same asian racism is racialization is different than black to talk about asian wall street people would be like great you're talking about vancouver you know like <laughs> asian wall street already, already exists you know right. so it's a different situation uh and i think i mean this is so i think that there's a there's a fine line here or whatever, a needle to thread. I don't really know how to do it, but I do think like on the one hand, I agree with Kelly that, um, you know, it might be uh, counterproductive to only focus on the success stories. Right. But I also feel, I also see the other side, which is that, um, you know, a lot of historians have said when talking about the history of slavery, um, there's a danger in making it such a, what's the word, like pessimistic story that actually produces a sense of shame uh, among black students and obviously reinforces racist stereotypes among white students. You know, like even if you 
Robert, you know, there's a famous book called Time on the Cross. Um, I don't know if any of you've heard of it. It was a book in the seventies that was, it sounds very, it sounds very Charles Murray on, on, on face value, on face value. It says the slave system in the United States South was actually economically pretty productive. So it kind of sounds like, oh, slavery was a good thing. Yeah. Uh, and lots of people attacked the book for basically apologizing for slavery. The response by Fogel, I think was the main author was like, no, uh, my point is to say that black people, black slaves had some accomplishments during this time of slavery upon which they could build and was taken away from them, et cetera. And the converse, right, the opposite argument, which is like slavery produced um, like sort of like cultural, economic, like retardation, right, is actually a conservative position that would be used by conservatives to say like, well, they just have a culture of poverty and because they were they had stunted development in right. slavery and so on, right? Yeah, so, that's, a, that's, that's very similar to like the conversations about music yeah. amongst music scholars. Um, so there's this there was this big debate about what to do about, you know, um, you know, like the sanctified church, for example, or, you know, like, do you, is there a way in which you can celebrate the, you know, the plantation songs and stuff like yeah. that. And, um, and then of course there was this huge culture war with like Amiri Baraka and like Stanley Crouch and all this sort of stuff. It's all very, you know, it's, yeah. it's interesting, but you know, like, um, you know, where Stanley Crouch was essentially arguing like, you know, the, great accomplishment jazz is a great accomplishment of black americans because it refined primitivism you know like it was like a like in that harlem was the engine that refined all of this stuff and somebody like duke ellington comes around and you know like he's able to sort of take the essence of all of this and to do it in this grand way you know like and you know like that gets into all sorts of respectability politics yeah, questions right. and stuff like that right. but yeah it's 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 sort of like the central question of a lot of these of these types of scholarships i think like yeah. which is like well how do we what story do we tell right and that's sort of um well and carp um, is dealing with that too i think because he's accusing a certain yeah. kind of liberal popular history of pathologizing or making biological somehow this yeah, version right. of black history yeah right like uh, you know not to jump ahead but like carp is saying like if we only focus on origins we don't understand things like tulsa yeah. or jim crow you know a lot of the responses to the kind of slavery original sin argument is like, well, you could make the argument that if Reconstruction was successful, that meant a lot more. That would have meant a lot more um, to the ex-slave, you know, um, black communities than, you know, slavery itself. In in sense of like, it would actually level the playing field because that's when real wealth was created in U.S. history it was like nineteenth twentieth century. Mm-hmm. So. Well, and I think one of the reasons that Robin D.G. Kelly locates like opportunities for collective action and movement if you differentiate different kinds of like racial experience or like the experience of racism among different like classes of black people is that it, it leads to a broader kind of like more accurate and internationalist thinking. And so when he talks about the trauma inflicted on most of the world, he's also inviting like all people who identify as U.S. people in some way to like also think about U.S. empire. And so in the history of Tulsa, he also wants to introduce like the Native American history of Oklahoma. Um, and yeah. have that be part of like the analysis of the Tulsa uh, massacre. Um, but yeah, I think like that's also in a way kind of trying to echo like what Hazel Carby and other people like that have been trying to do, which is like the U.S. Black story is not really just a U.S. story. It's right. like an international story of slavery and like commodity capitalism, right? So yeah, right. Um, yeah I think that's so useful. I think that's it invites a humility among all people, you know, in their analysis of their experience. 
Do you think that that type of history could ever be as popular, though, or as, uh, as <laughs> yeah. you know, politically powerful? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of what I was saying about, like, U.S. history being its own thing. Because always, when I look in on these conversations, it's not that there's no potential to make these international, but they tend to very rarely be. Um, and, you know, the, the obvious thing with, like, making, with taking classes or starting point or working classes or starting point is that it's universal in a way that you look, even if let's say race is the most significant thing in everyone's life on a day-to-day basis in the United States. um, If you take it at that, at that level of like, this is how the world appears to me in the U S that does make it very hard to make comparisons and analogies and connections with the rest of the world that doesn't experience race the same way. He's also making a specific argument with regards to transatlantic black slavery because he's mm-hmm. he's saying that this is a system that was obviously global in scope and right. that it was the same channels that took people to all these different parts of the world and so to tell like a nationalist history of that like makes yeah. even less sense than other sorts of histories that are, right. are temptingly nationalist yeah right right and that's interesting because there's been movements to do that more and since for a couple of decades now i wonder what if there's greater purchase for that now or less than yeah i don't know i mean because I, I think it's well, like like people have rediscovered Du Bois and Du Bois wrote a lot about how like black slavery was connected to the global mm-hmm. you right. know, exploitation yeah. of workers and, and the Caribbean was brought into the analysis. I think that's I think that that there is like I don't know it's almost like there's a strong audience for that. Um, that's good. But I don't know I also I also get the sense that you know we've talked about on the show like there's also like a real strong nationalism. Um, in a lot of these conversations as well, like patriotism or not patriotism, but like yeah. US centrism. I think right, in popular right. history, it's more nationalistic than maybe in academic history. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, okay. Let's go to the CARP essay. Um, so, Matt CARP wrote this essay, History as the End of Politics, right? Um, and I think that's right. Or as end of politics of the past. I'm looking at the URL. History as end. History as end. The URL is much longer. Is that the subhead or something <laughs> like that? <laughs> I, I should not read off the URL. History has passed. It was in Harper's and it was, you know, I don't know. I found it to be a very provocative interest. We've talked about this in the, I mm-hmm. actually, I've, you know, I wrote a piece recently about this. It's not out yet, but you know, like, what are we, and it was mostly about what are we doing with the history of like Jonestown, for example, you know, like why, <laughs> like why is every single thing that happens compared to Jonestown and what are we doing with history in that moment? Right. So, um, and I, I don't know, we've made this argument in the past, which is like, all right, is, does history take up too much space, right, um, politically? Yeah. And like, why is it taking up so much space is, I think, more of Karp's argument. Although yeah. I think he would say it's also taking up too much space politically in terms of like the la- uh, liberal left and the way in which it's doing it. So um, I don't know. Tammy, how would you how would you sort of characterize his argument here? Yeah, I guess Andy touched on it. I think I would agree with that summary, which is that there's been a shift of in terms of who's using history politically and that the left and liberals, although they disagree, are using it a lot more than the right or at least much more successfully because the right, I think, using the shortcut of kind of Trump and the Bushes are just so bad at using it that they, <laughs> they basically have no credibility in their like romantic use of it. Um, I will say, though, I was laughing because Carp sort of says, 
1776 project, like Trump's ridiculous like attempt <laughs> to undo 1619, was so stupid that like it absolutely has no purchase. And one thing they actually seeded is that the Civil War is about slavery. It wasn't like a states' <laughs> rights thing. And so Carp was like, that's like such an like it was such yeah. a desperate and pathetic attempt. But I was driving a couple times down um, I-5 from Tacoma to Portland recently, and there's a Jefferson Davis monument on the side of the road that's like huge. Right. So there's it on just, yeah, on the Oregon side. Yeah. And there's a huge Figures like thatch Oregon. of, like by Battleground, Oregon, there's a huge thatch of Confederate flags and a big Jefferson Davis head. And, you know, anyway, so I was just kind of laughing because I think I had, I had just read it and was just passing yeah. that. Um, so you see this, you know, alive and well practiced among people with various levels of political power in localities. But, you know, I think generally I would agree with him that I think we're talking about it a lot more than the right is. Have I told you my story about going to the White House of the first White House of the Confederacy? Where no. is that? Is it Virginia? Oh, it's in Montgomery, Alabama. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, Montgomery, Alabama is very strange. So they have like the Hank Williams Museum. I think it's Hank Williams. <laughs> they have the, uh, you know, the bus boycotts museum, like the Rosa Parks bus boycotts museum. Uh-huh. And then they have uh, the first White House of the Confederacy. It is fucking crazy. It's like, so I went there with uh, a couple of activists who I was writing profile with at the time. You go in and like, first of all, it's totally empty. And secondly, there is a woman there who was like sort of the caretaker of it. She was German, had a very thick German accent. Whoa. And she was like, she kept giving us books. And if you look in the books, it's like crazy. You know, it's like Jefferson Davis had a, this is true. I mean, Jefferson Davis did like sort of, I guess, like kind of adopt, you know, in the loosest terms, right? Like a black child, you know? Mackins. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the book that she gives us, which is a kid's book, you know, oh, God. was written like Jefferson Davis, you know, just loved this kid, you know, and he was like a special kid. And, you know, like he had a real... It's like the the tellings of history of that stuff is insane, you know. Wow. And so then that, and then and then at some point she went down. At this, all of this is true. I swear to God, she went down and she was like, "Would you like to? Uh, uh, would you like to see what cotton was like?" And I was like, "This total non sequitur. Nobody was talking about cotton." So she goes <laughs> to the back and brings out this tub of cotton, and she's like, "This is insane," you know. And then she goes. Uh, and then these two giant dudes come in, even though the museum at that point, it was past closing time, it was closed. And they, you know, they look like FBI agents. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like the activists I was following around were like for this story were, you know, somewhat prominent activists. And I was just like, is this like, man, right? Like, it's, it's, like it's not surprising. Huh? They look like Gene Hackman and Mississippi Burns. <laughs> no, no, they looked like, Dudes in like, you know, baseball caps who were giant, you know, and they uh, clearly had no interest in being in the museum. They're clearly just following these people around, wow, you know, wow. and their thought was like, uh, well, what are they? Why have they been in there so long? You know, it's past closing. They must be doing something to it. So they just come in, you know, Dang. and I was just like, oh, my God, <laughs> it's the weirdest, one of the weirder moments of my life. Is it? It's a private museum then. Is it like. No, it's on the like grounds. Like, the no, that's the thing. It's something? like on the grounds of the Capitol, you know? Oh, right. So it's like, you know, like so this stuff, I don't know. I guess yeah. my, my sense of this is so different. I, I think it is completely um, colored by having grown up in the South, Yeah, you know? And um, I think that like sometimes I might have less patience for 
left critiques of it just because I'm like, you don't understand. Like, I agree with what you're saying, but you don't understand. I don't know if you understand yeah. how bad this is, <laughs> you yeah. know, like how bad the distortions are, how much like any type of intervention is necessary. Right. Because people really do like they grow up large, large portions of the country grow up, you yeah. know, believing all of this, you know, and like, because that's what they've been taught, you know, and that's, that's sort of the official line. Um, that's essentially what all this anti-CRT stuff is trying to preserve, right? Like we, we can teach it this way. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so what did you feel Jay, when we had our, you know, the statue toppling and all this stuff last year, like around Southern, you know, quote unquote heroes. Oh, I thought it was, I totally support it. I think it's great. You know, like, like, is it just symbolic? Sure. But you know, it matters. Like, I don't know, like, uh, one of the big ones is at UNC, right? The Sam, mm-hmm. Sam statue. Yeah. And um, I remember walking past that statue uh, many, many times, because right, you know, right off East Franklin Street, it was. And um, that's where all like the pizzerias and the record stores and stuff were back in the day. And now, you know, they've been paved over and now they're like a Bank of America or something like that. But, you know, it's a separate topic. But like, so you go hang out on Franklin Street, you walk on campus, right? And you walk past it. You have no, we had me and my friends didn't know what that statue was but then i looked in the history of it that thing has been protested every 20 years since it was put Mm up you know and so like the idea that like nobody cared about it you know and it's just like a bunch of agitators trying to find something that like that that they don't like and do some symbolic thing i don't know it's just not true you know and so i don't know I, i think it's good to have those types of moments um and I don't necessarily think it, you know, when people got mad being like, how dare you? That person was actually good, you know, and everyone else yeah. is bad. I'm just like, come on. Well, I didn't know? think you would think that, but I guess I was curious, like, given what you were just saying about how embedded these wrong histories are in the South, like whether you were like, maybe we should keep some of this because they like stand as lesson as teaching yeah. moments or teaching points. Like, were you at all sympathetic to that line of argument, especially also because you're like a free speech radical? Right, right. I mean, <laughs> so, radical. Absolutely. Taking more seriously yeah, that argument. Like, well, yes, I, I do. I do find that argument to be an argument right like i like not not in that i meaning that like i think it exists like i do think that there's something yeah there is a line of thinking in that way now i just don't believe that that it will ever be framed in that sort of way you know yeah. and um i like i think that the history of people trying to figure out different solutions to this statue which included what you're talking about mm-hmm. and just yeah. being rebuffed at every single right. turn right is like evidence enough one, one section from this CARP essay that I think we should discuss, right, which is, um, right, this, uh, and I, you know, I want you guys to sort of tell me what you found interesting in it as well, but like, there's one section that sort of stood out to me, and he's talking about like, uh, criticisms, right, of this type of historicism, um, this type being like, broad, liberal um, histories presented in large, large uh, prestigious institutions, right, whether MacArthur Foundation, whatever, right. As the critics Pankaj Mishra and Hazel Carby have noted, the new style of historicism focuses narrowly, if not exclusively, on the United States, sidelining the much larger history of slavery and racism in the Atlantic world while ignoring the global impact of the U.S. empire. The result is a kind of funhouse mirror of American exceptionalism (laughs) in which many of the familiar heroes from Jefferson to Lincoln become villains. But the setting is uh, essentially the same. Likewise, as the political scientist Adolf Reed Jr. has argued, the new historicism either neglects the question of economic class or subordinates it to the politics of racism, producing a reductive and strangely motionless version of the past that historian 
James Oakes calls, quote, racial consensus history. And as the professor Henry Neptune has pointed out, Harvey Neptune has pointed out, nearly all of these authors offer an account of race that tends to naturalize rather than historicize its emergence as an ideological category, ignoring more critical work on the production of racism by foundational scholars such as Barbara Fields and Nell Painter. Andy, as a historian, your thoughts. <laughs> these are good, and these aren't really historians. No, some of these are historians. Nell That's Painter right. and Barbara Fields are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and Oakes is as well, I think. Yeah. Um, no, these are all good. I, th- I think he's implicitly listing all the criticisms he likes right. of uh, <laughs> a lot of this stuff. Yeah. But I think the big kind of payoff is in general, that all this, a lot of the, so we're really talking about like histories that would say like everything begins with slavery. This is the original sin of this country. I think at a, mo- at a very basic level, he's kind of saying what I was, I kind of mentioned this earlier with the Kelly essay that by focusing so much on the 18th century, you create this very pessimistic picture of an unchanging, you know, racism that pervades all the United States history. When, why don't we look at things that, about how things actually did change, perhaps, you know, still racist and oppressive and all that, um, into the 19th and the 20th century, because at least that way you get a sense that history changes and that is, from a political standpoint, more useful mm-hmm. um, rather than this incredibly pessimistic thing about how, um, you know, you know, explaining the 2008 financial crisis by looking at um, slavery in the 18th century. Which you know, it, like that's not, that's an interesting thought experiment, but it's not not yeah. empirically like a thing that you can really you know. It's like it's more what's the word? It's more of a like provocative thing to say mm-hmm. than a, like well, here's a document that shows that shows any of this. And I, I think more generally, I mean, looking at his kind of more theoretical academic stuff that he throws into this essay, um, he's kind of making this kind of Nietzschean point, which I was kind of thinking about. The last time we had this conversation when Jay was like, well, is history useful? Because, I, you know, I am a historian, <laughs> but I actually kind of think there's a good argument to be made. Um, with this, this Nietzschean point about, like, the politics of, you know, resentment or resentment that when, and this is actually like Wendy Brown's critique of identity politics, um, which is very prescient from the 90s, which is if you kind of frame history around past injury, past trauma, uh, and so on, history almost becomes... Uh, a, a thing that paralyzes you um, mm-hmm. and, and you get stuck in the past. Um, and, you know, the Nietzschean, you know, exaggerated solution is just like forget the past and become a Superman and just like live your life or whatever. We don't necessarily have to go that far, but I think the, criti- <laughs> but the criticism is like, I think it's like as a polemic, it's kind of a useful thing to remind right. us like this, like, uh, you know, sometimes not it's not that too much history is bad. It's like a kind of a kind of attitude towards history is bad, where it's all about getting obsessed with things that happened in the past, almost to the detriment of living in the present. Yeah. Right. Right. The question yeah. around like, uh, is Trump a fascist? You know, is like, what parallels can we derive yeah. from this to you know 1930s Germany? Right. For example, yeah. and being like, well, if we can't draw the perfect parallels, is what we're living through not bad? Right. Like that's sort of the implied question. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I find that to be a very strange way to think about things. To say the <laughs> least. Um, I think it's also paralyzing in a different way, which is like 
like capital and like the forces that hurt us, they like are always moving and morphing and like developing new strategies. And then we're inert and, you know, if we're, if we are inert and thinking, oh, we can't ever overcome these things and they're almost like embedded in us. Like it, yeah, it's, it's, it is, it's a pessimistic version of the the world. And it's also, um, I don't know. I think it just really discounts what people are capable of and like the creativity that is possible in like political movements too. Yeah. I mean, I think the way Brown put it once was something like, rather than focus on, like, the question is, like, does his, does this history allow us, does this history get us so bogged down in, like, what happened in the past? Or does this history allow us to imagine a future for, for this sort of critique of identity politics, for all of us, right? right? Because our critique is something like, if you get so caught up in, like, past trauma, past injury, what is owed mm-hmm. from one group to another group, mm-hmm. you almost make it impossible for these groups to imagine a future of equality, Um or solidarity yeah. yeah exactly right yeah. yeah and that is you know she wrote that in the 90s in a way i feel like it's so like prescient about how a lot of identity stuff has worked out for the last 30 years and totally with, yeah. in which case it yeah. sometimes becomes toxic and a little bit divisive right right but although i would say that like if it's true then one should still say it right but um i yeah. don't i my, my sense about this and this is like maybe just like the nerdy way of going about it which is just that like I find it very strange, and and I think that Carp goes into this a little bit, right? Which is essentially, like, why is it that, like, there needs to be, like, it seems like we're playing this matching game almost always, right? Uh, and I think that social media actually has a lot to do with this, where um, if something bad happens and the immediate impulse is yeah. to find the historical corollary to it, right? And people do a screenshot, for example, and say, look, this happened before, right? <laughs> and it almost feels like it's like this gatekeeping type of thing, mm. right? Like, although that's not really the quite right word, but it's like almost like a confirmation, right? That it's bad if it has a historical uh, precedent to it and that if it's not, then it's not important, right? And that I, th- I find that to be really strange because I think that A, that all this stuff is obviously very manipulated, right? And that the symmetries are probably not as real as people say they are. Yeah. But B, I also just find it to be politically inert because I think yeah. it completely takes like the, it basically just says, yep, rubber stamp, this matters. And then there's no, <laughs> yeah. there's like, in fact, the political act that could come out of it or any type of, yeah. not that people need to come up with solutions, but like even the outrage of it is almost funneled into the outrage of over what happened in the past. Yeah. Right. So like, uh, I think that that's part of what Robin Kelly's crit, criticism of how Tulsa is handled is discussed, which is just like, uh, there's bad stuff happening now. If we just compare it to Tulsa and Tulsa becomes this thing and we're mad about Tulsa, then like, what does that mean? Does that mean that we retain any of the sort of political energy over the thing that happened in the, in the present? Now, I would say that like people can do both, you know, but I would also say that a lot of scholars and a lot of people who discuss these things professionally don't do both, right? Like they do fixate on the sort of discussion of the past and that it seems like if uh, if like, let's just say everything's right, like, let's say, OK, that is a perfect match. Right. Like, let's say <laughs> that, like, uh, the Atlanta massacres for Asian people is the same as the lynchings that happened in Chinatown in Los Angeles in like the 19th century. Right. And it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like everything is the same. The symmetry is right. You win the symmetry. And like, what is the lesson to that? You know, yeah, like, what's the what what's the outcome to it? Just like, well, you match them. You know, it's like when my kid finishes a puzzle by herself. Right. She's like, great. You know, and now we just put it back in the box. <laughs> Have you found oh. my my three year old is so much better than me at these memory games? Oh, really? I, find this, I mean, maybe I'm just dumb, but or she's a genius. But I'm like, I can't beat her in these matching games where she like, memorizes. 
I don't know. Should I, we don't really do a lot of those, but we started playing this game that I'm pretty sure is like eco-fascist. And it, it's, just, <laughs> it's, like, it's like population. I was explaining to my friends. Well, first of all, I played a th- I, I was playing disc golf with my friends and I was like, I tripped over a stump and I fell and I'm like injured from it. Like, I, I, I'm like, <laughs> I was just like, I, I've never felt this bad in my life. You know, I just, I just tripped over stuff. I mean, I did have a big fall, but I was just like, that's crazy. Like I can't, I can barely walk the next day. Okay. Um, but um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I won't explain the game, but basically yeah. it's like, you're on this like island in like the Costa del Sol or something like that. And um, like, all the businesses are kind of failing you know and so the guy mayor wants to build a hotel but the hotel is like above an abandoned nature reserve and so you're like this like six-year-old girl and you and your friend inez need to like stop the building of the of the uh of the hotel like you know like (laughs) even though it will destroy the island's local economy (laughs) it's like actually framed that way you know like they took the time to like consider both sides of the question and they're just like you don't fuck it you know we'll just wow it's really sophisticated (laughs) right it's very sophisticated and essentially it's like you could imagine like the message that it's sending to kids is just like listen you know it's like uh if we could save um you know like the crested tit on this island or whatever like you know all the, they actually are very good at like you know or, or like the uh peregrine falcon then like you know like who cares about the hotel and then you know and then it turns out the hotel deal is totally corrupt and then you have to go around taking photos of like the mayor getting giant briefcases of money from the hotel developers and then, and then the game, and then you've won. Yeah, you've exposed the corruption of it. <laughs> so I'm sorry for the spoilers if anyone wants to play Alba with their child. But it was, it was, it was, Wait, that's actually part of the game. Uh, the corruption is actually part of the. Game. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you beat <laughs> is the this game like in a computer or in yeah, a board game. It's a game? Nintendo Switch game. This is oh you my actually, god! You actually like you actually win the game by by taking a photo on your iPhone wow. of like the kid of like the of the of the bear taking a briefcase of money from Paco, the hotel developer. This is too Paco. much for me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, it's a great game. It was fun. She loved playing it. And now, you know, it fits with the rest of the Berkeley politics that she's being, um, that she's being, <laughs> that she's being indoctrinated right. into. Brainwashed. Um, anyway, I don't remember why we started. I think, no, I think, I think so in terms of <laughs> matching, I think that's a good question. I think my two, like, random thoughts is one, I think this is a function of more historians around social media. Yeah. Right. That's that, my thought. Yeah. It's like you guys need to not be on Twitter. <laughs> Twitter historians. <laughs> well, okay. I will I'll I'll defend us by saying I do think these are useful, potentially useful, and we just never had a forum. So it's you know, you're, you're welcome. <laughs> you know, all these interesting analogies. <laughs> but, you, but my second thought is like it has my criticism of the historian profession is like, well, this has exposed um how few how the historian profession doesn't train itself to think about okay, what next, you know? Like, right, but that's also yeah. true of journalists, by the way, okay. right? Yeah. So it's all right. a, a right. group self-criticism session. Right, right. <laughs> journalists <laughs> who also questions. do a lot of this stuff now um, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, like, for example, like, you know, um, talking about Chinese exclusion, something yeah. like that, right? Like, yeah. the journalists who are not political thinkers. They're journalists, right? And... Um, they are following an incentive, not in, but they, they're doing a good duty in exposing some of the stuff that happened in the past. But there's never quite to me like an 
very convincing argument as to why these things are the same, except to place a certain group of people as being perpetual, uh, you know, like to be to like create a history of trauma that that explains an entire people. Yeah. And I think that's relevant for some people, and I think it's less relevant for other people, you know, specifically yeah. Asian Americans. Yeah, it does seem like there's a template being created. We could loosely call it Asia pessimism, like emulating Afro pessimism, right? Right, um, right, right. Yep. That it doesn't have to be that way, but that does seem to be like if you just put that out there, like there are these murders and these traumatic, you know, massacres and so on, and just leave it there, it's kind of hard to imagine what um, conclusion to arrive at other than, you know, Asian people are always the victims, white people are always the oppressors. Right, and, right. And this is like a brutal, violent history, which in a lot of ways it is, right? But like we say every episode of the show, I don't know how much relevance it has to like, you know, uh, you know, um, Michael Shin, who grew up in Diamond Bar and went to UCLA. <laughs> Michael is not a real person. Actually, definitely is a Michael Shin. In Apologies Bar. to Michael in Diamond Bar. You know how many Michael Shins there are in Diamond Bar who went to UCLA? There's probably like five a year. <laughs> <laughs> and Grace Shin, who also went to UCLA, there's like there's like five Grace Shins too. Um, anyway, all right. Is there anything else you want to say about this? Like, it's a big topic. I don't know. I think we should just periodically come back to it because I find it so interesting. It's just like, well. What should we, you know, um, I don't know. My sense of it is that history probably does take up too much space in these conversations. Um, And I don't know. I love it, though. Not enough. Or you you want more. I always (laughs) want more. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm forward thinker. (laughs) (laughs) Stuck in the past. Andy and I are playing matching game. Right. You're playing a matching game. I'm just out here trying to help the people. Um, I don't know. I, I guess, I, yeah, I, but other, you know, the flip side of it, which, you know, this can be the last thing we talk about. This is just like, I mean, Tim, what's your, what was your history? Uh, what was your history education like in Tacoma, Washington? I think it was decent. I mentioned my crying uh, right, nemesis right. the other day, but I think generally. Okay. I remember uh, the Tacoma but very Bridge. boring. Like yeah. huh? the Tacoma bridge. That's a big part of, Pacific Northwest history. Oh, the Narrows Bridge, Gallup and Gertie. Yeah, the bridge collapsed. Did you learn about like Japanese <laughs> strawberry farmers and stuff? No. Oh, in the Pacific Northwest? I did not, yeah. You only learned about those through the book Snow Falling yes, on Cedars? Yes, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By reporting. <laughs> right. Um, I, th- I don't know. I, 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 I guess it's, you know, obviously these questions are important and the fact that all these are under assault is really a lot of proof that it's important but um i don't know i generally think it's like okay to have more of this history instruction in schools the the other thing i would the other thing i would say is just i was thinking about this just now because you know tammy and me growing up in seattle like the other way that nationalism kind of distorts things here is that like if you grew up in seattle like the civil war is not your history you know, like I know, I know it is, and like it's everyone's history, but it's also like not really. It's like it was a different country. You weren't Seattle wasn't part of the United States, right? You don't go to, you don't like walk by battlegrounds the way that yeah. we did. You know, and, growing up in North Carolina, and there is another yeah. way in which, again, not to diminish the importance of everything that happened, you know, during the Civil War and so on, but there is a way in which it kind of, just like the 18th century overwhelms the 21st century, right? The, yeah, like the East Coast overwhelms the West Coast, totally. And like that. 
you know, like we've talked about before, it's the Pacific Ocean that kind of matters yeah. most right. for Asian Americans. Right. That's like our previous, yeah, like our previous podcast, Margo Okazawa Ray was talking yeah. about like that, how we're oppressed by the East Coast history yeah. in a way. You know, we are all burdened by an East our Coast history. Our oppressors, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the one good thing we might get in the Pacific Northwest is um, there's more pressure to teach uh, Native American yeah. history, I think, yeah. properly. Yeah. I think, I mean, I'm sure it's much more proper now than when we were kids. But even then, I had a fairly okay, it, like we acknowledged the genocide, for instance, for sure. of Native peoples. Oh, we yeah. definitely didn't. But we, <laughs> you know, and Sherman's yeah. march was only seen as being uh, terrible. Like terrorism. Oh. Yeah. Wow. I think we kind of thought it was kind of funny. <laughs> Did you think it was like cool? <laughs> Not cool, but just sort of like, oh, that's Oh, man, we people. had none of that. It was like, you know, it was like, it was basically, I mean, they talked about it like it was act of terrorism. Yeah. You know? Wow. Um, I guess we're, but, yeah, I was kind of surprised that happened. I was like, oh, shit, that happened. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, anyway. Um, should we talk about the NCAA? Yeah. Um, okay. Are we too... We're at an hour six. We're okay. We can okay. go a little bit longer. Um, one thing that happened, and this is the you know this is our duty as a timely news show, and that also talks about sports, <laughs> is that the uh, NCAA, the Supreme Court, nine to nothing today. Yeah, you know, crazy. Uh, decided the NCAA versus Sean Alston, um, which was a court. You know, it's interesting because like I think people expected too much out of this court case because essentially what this court yeah. case, like what the what the decision was about. It was about like whether or not students, athletes should be able to have a very narrow range of benefits, right? So it's not like, should we be paid? It's like, should we be able to uh, have laptop computers, I think is one of the big questions. <laughs> and should we have, um, and grad should we be benefits, grad school benefits insurance. and like small stipends, insurance, stuff like that, right? So now, obviously, the logic of this is going to go on to other things, right? And a 9-0 decision is monumental in that sort of way. And it seems like it's basically paved the way for the next time somebody comes up with something that this is going to be a slam dunk in some ways. And so it is significant in that way. But it's not like, you know, tomorrow, my beloved UNC Tar Heels will be paying people above the table. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know it's not like they'll be, um, I don't know what, and, um, uh, I don't, Tam, what do you think about this? You are the legal scholar here. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, <laughs> I thought it was interesting because it's, well, it's like the only part of sports that I've ever really followed, which is like the NCAA labor issues. <laughs> um, like the, the case that was decided, I was thinking about the case that was decided in 2014. Well, I guess it settled out of court on video game representations of right, right. Charles O'Bannon. O'Bannon. Yeah, O'Bannon. that was fascinating. Yeah, Ed O'Bannon, Ed O'Bannon yep, yep. another um, like antitrust case basically against NCAA. So I was thinking about that and I was also thinking about two other contextual things. Like one is the fact that under the new NLRB, it seems like graduate students are going to be able to continue organizing, you know, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, sort of like, I think the question of like student organizing is like a background in in the NCAA case. And then the third thing is just that, you know, we're going to have a little bit more of an active antitrust regulatory apparatus within the Biden administration, given right. Lena Khan and other appointments. So, um, you know, we have a, a unanimous SCOTUS decision that's a, sort of an antitrust thing, even though it's very narrow, as Jay just mentioned. So, you know, I think it's like a positive thing. I was really interested to read in the decision. So there, there's a majority decision by Gorsuch, and then there's like a concurring decision by Kavanaugh, where he just goes yeah. absolutely bananas, <laughs> like way off, like talking about like doing a basically like a Marxist analysis of like he, college he, athlete labor. Like he, he called the 
athletes workers and so i was like what is crazy. is this in jacobin well, you know like, what wait, did you say workers or sell their labor no he said they're workers oh, he called well, them yeah. workers yeah. you know like he compared them to workers which yeah. is so strange right <laughs> like really I, strange. but then I, you know my friends and i have this theory about kavanaugh which is just he's like a big sports fan you know? <laughs> <laughs> maybe he likes beer he likes football oh well no i mean he is a big sports Horrifying. fan you know and it's like yeah. maybe he's just carved this out right you yeah, know maybe he has no maybe, ideology like Maybe he's, like, he's just like so mad. Of, like he's watched like it, look anyone who watches college sports and follows college sports. I think like except like the people who think that this like as evidenced by nine zero decision, but also just by like you know mm-hmm. every single public opinion poll, that number of people who think that student athletes shouldn't be paid is like pathetically yeah. small. Yeah, you know, so. it like nobody actually thinks that. Yeah. You know, the only people who think that are people who are on social media saying like you know. I have two kids who are, uh, you know, and I'm paying for their college and I don't get why these spoiled kids, you know, want money on top of their free education. Like, it's like nobody you meet will actually say that, you know? Uh, or so maybe, people who I don't, don't know. watch sports, they don't see how it is. Like, right, 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 right. Right. Or like you watch the NCAA tournament and you're like, how much money is this generating for CBS and the NCAA and all these universities? And these kids have to, are coming out to play. And, you know, like the only thing they get is like, you know, they get, you know, videos of them crying after games that become memes, you know, it's just like, okay. you know, <laughs> do you like, think like um, the professional football, professional basketball, like labor stuff that's been more in the news is like part of this too? Cause it seems like more people are kind of yeah. aware of that. It's yeah. like, Oh yeah, they should have bargaining rights against like these big bosses. Yeah. I feel like players, NBA players as part of the like strike last year, they also, one of the things they talked about was college sports. Yeah. Right. To me, I feel like there's almost a parallel with um, our previous discussion, just because in my mind, I remember there's an article in 2011 in The Atlantic, again, by Taylor Branch, who's a civil rights historian, right. called The Shame oh, of yeah. College Sports. And this is like, this, this by the way, is like in, in the same, not to a smaller scale, but this was like, as you know, yeah. if you follow this thing, this was like the case for reparations. It was huge. Yeah, this was, this I thought. Huge. I yeah. 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 So in, in my mind, again, like, I'm sure there's stuff before that, but that in my mind was like this. Uh, what's the word like touchstone milestone right thing that started this conversation where within a few years it became consensus among everyone i talked to people who i never talked sports with would bring it up mm. and be like yeah. i watched want, I want you know the netflix documentary you know making the same <laughs> it's argument probably like me yeah <laughs> yeah and it was like uh it very quickly became this thing that everyone you know center left agreed upon mm-hmm. um, especially because of the racial dynamic too right yeah right i mean the n- new comparisons to slavery and jim crow Mm-hmm. are always made um, with yeah. regards to sports. One thing I was curious though, like, I mean, this is not to like denigrate or to deny like this, that this decision should have been made, but I almost had this reaction that sort of like, it was a night no, <laughs> like maybe there's something wrong with this or not something wrong, but maybe there's, <laughs> there's a sort of open tentedness to this position that we should perhaps try to specify what's the like good way and the less good way to call for um, yeah, I had that thought too. You know what I'm saying? Like, are Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett just kind of like, you know, laying the groundwork so that people, <laughs> you know, because I saw a lot of celebrations of Brett Kavanaugh by people who I would I never imagine, yeah. you know, um, celebrating Brett Kavanaugh. And I did have that thought. I was like, are they just, are they getting ready for the great Oak <laughs> you know, where they're like, okay, look, you know, nobody agrees with this, you know, yeah. like, no, like, this is. And, well, there's I don't another think, unanimous I, I actually, decision. I actually, though. I actually don't think so. Yeah, no. I, don't think I mean, it's like that. I feel like there was there was another unanimous decision on criminal law last month, 
And it was the same kind of thing of like, oh, like, you know, how are you supposed to feel about this? But it's just like, (laughs) it just like shows that all this stuff is so political, right? And they just kind of respond to what's in the air. (laughs) The statements are like, and then like, uh, this is the second round of it, because when um, this, when Kavanaugh and Alito and like Coney Barrett were like questioning, you know, during the arguments for this, like people were also screen capping what they were saying. Is he like Kavanaugh was so mad at the NCAA and it was like Kavanaugh got two moments out of this, you know, to like <laughs> oh, seem man. like basically so like, a, like a labor, yeah. like a labor activist almost. Um, right. But yeah, I don't know. It's interesting because it is true that nobody wants this, and especially yeah. you know who doesn't want this is like the wealthy people who support these programs because they just want to be able to give kids money to go to their school to play football you oh, know really? yeah yeah of course man <laughs> so all the boosters and like the sec right <laughs> right if i was super rich you know um i've said this i think before like let's say i own 16 car dealerships in the piedmont area of north carolina i would or let's say i ran a it's chain so of specific. nursing homes you know oh god <laughs> I, <laughs> it's grim i would i would i would give i would and it was legal for me to like just be like, hey, five star recruit, you know, here's a new car. Here's like two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Why don't you come play for Tar Heels for a year? Yeah. Absolutely. Do that, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> you like, love your team so much. Oh, yeah. I just want them to win. Wow. It's the only team I care about. And it's like that's happening anyway, right. you know. And so, yeah, I, I think that the people who are the big boosters want this to happen yeah. so that they can just do yeah. it out in the open, you know? Yeah. Um, yes. Now, or, no. or more in the open, right? Because it's not like, you know, whatever system of stipends or something like this come out is going to be like, no, you can also have rich people just come out and like buy, you know, buy a Mercedes Benz <laughs> and like two houses for these kids. The right? way it used to be before uh, the NCAA. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, though the way it still is in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. But, um, you know, they want to do it a little more in the open, I think, right. with less scrutiny um, than there was before. Mm. Um, yeah. I, don't know. I mean, this all in a way. This kind of reminds me of the Robin Kelly discussion in the sense that, like, there's a way to be against the exploitation of these college students because you're against the exploitation of all people and so on and so forth. Yeah. Or is there, or or they just seem to be drawing a line between like normal capitalist market exploitation is good, right? Right. Yeah. It's this extraneous, like like worse than like pre-modern feudal system that's bad yeah right um, and in a way like i was reading in, in, here's a history analogy i was reading and i was like i was reminded like when you read like anti-slavery stuff in the 19th century abolitionist stuff they're not saying like you know the pursuit of profit is bad and it's like right. destroyed human life it's like no it's good markets are good yeah. And the problem with slavery is that it's not a market system. Right. They so want this, regular wage slavery. Yeah. It was a celebration <laughs> of like Adam yeah. Smithian commercialism. Yeah. Right. So again, this if it's yeah. a if it's a first it's a forced choice, obviously, right? Like this is the right decision. But in a way it's also sort of like just normalizing money in college sports. It's true. And normalizing, I think the the flip side of this, and this is like my concern as a professor, is like it's normalizing the like complete dominance of sports in universities right um especially you know for like a unc or for like a sec school maybe it's good or, you know where money. you teach <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, 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 don't google that which, guy which, yeah. distro- which like actually was the last moment watching a sporting event where <laughs> that's true i was upset 
Like I'd never upset watching sports in that game. Uh, you should have been when, like uh, when we oh, lost really? the national championship on the last. I was mad for like a, I I was surprised at how upset I was, and um and then the next day I was still upset and I was like, what's going on with me? You know, yeah. I was like uh, I was like I've been a sports journalist for years. Like you know, it gets beaten out of you within a year, and yeah. then I was like, I'm so mad. I can't believe it. Been like, <laughs> this is the 26th title game for everyone. And MJ right. was just clapping. He just gave it up for a great shot. Oh my god! I need to just like make a yeah. That's when I made my decision. I was like, I'm gonna buy some cars, I'm <laughs> looking for a higher price, and then, and then I'm gonna go to you know go to people's house. And be like, listen, I see also, that you have. Would you like a newer car? <laughs> I want to respond to what you said, Andy, and yeah. I um I didn't mean to back off the unanimity critique so yeah, quickly, yeah, yeah. like or to be facetious about it because i think you're on to something really real around like antitrust discourse which is like this yeah. whole thing about yeah like there's a conservative view of antitrust and like a little bit more of a liberal view and i think this also repeats like in amazon discussions like what are we to do right like you can't i think like a conservative position who thinks like the yeah okay maybe a little bit of like monopoly regulation against amazon is okay but we can generally leave the structures in place and that's like maybe the worry of you know, leaning too heavily on the FTC, like from the leftist perspective or like a worker oriented Amazon strategy perspective, because you the I guess like the worry would be that you would just go too far into like LenaCon will save us all (laughs) and you'd give up on like shop floor organizing or like other like more radical, you know, it is a um, classically liberal position. Totally. Which is to say (laughs) market conservative, you know, like it's it's like we have the Sherman Act, right? Like. Yeah, because yeah. this otherwise this stuff works perfectly, right? So, it's but right. I think like right now we need to combine antitrust thinking with the radical stuff on the ground yeah. too, because we're so far out. Yeah, yeah. I Makes also sense. think like this thing is so bad. It's so yeah, bad. Sure. like that, like uh, like the way that the NCAA profits and does not compensate their athlete. I mean, we don't have to even explain why it's bad, you know. That I think that anything yeah. that sort of chips, like I just want the NC to, you know, like it's just like you want you want this to st- stop basically, yeah. and then you can sort out the politics afterwards. But right now, it seems like it's probably going to start. There's, you know, it's it's encouraging. Um, yeah. I don't know. Like one of the questions one of my friends asked me this morning over text that I want to ask you, Tammy, is that like, I mean, like does this allay some of the fears that you have of this composition of the court? No. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> No, I think we'll have like a few cases where like the like, for instance, in this case, like the holding is narrow enough, you know, the logic is like sort of seductive enough across ideology that we don't really have a problem. And the criminal justice decision that was unanimous from last month had to do with, um, you know, searching private residences. Also, so some stuff is kind of like so far out. It's, you know, they will feel like the political wins. But I don't trust these people. Right. Sure. (laughs) What about wasn't Obamacare? Was that like? Actually, oh. like, were they? Were yeah, they like, upheld. Defended? Yeah, it was yeah. good too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. My dad called me and he was like, "You can go buy Obamacare." And I was like, "Okay." I was like, uh, you guys stop reading the news so much. <laughs> God, the third time Obamacare is, you know, uh, gone before SCOTUS. It's like, yeah. But I uh, do think that it. I, I the <laughs> only thing I will say is that I do think that it will be a quieter court than we thought. Mm. But I think that if they decide to hear the affirmative action case, the Harvard affirmative action case, then it will not be, you know, and that it will be because I don't think there'll be a 9-0 decision in that one, you know, but it could be that the court just decides not to hear it and upholds the lower court decision, right? They haven't made that decision yet. I would be shocked if they did. 
But the, I think yeah. one of the things that they did was they asked the Biden administration um, for their opinion on it. And of course, I think the Biden administration will uphold the you know federal district court's decision. And I think uh, maybe that'll be the end of it, you know, and then that'll like that would be crazy. It's something that I would not have expected when I was covering that trial. I thought it was just slam dunk that they would, you know, they would go up. And then, you know, once it became clear, at least with even before Coney Barrett, you know, with just Kavanaugh, I was like, well, mm. you know, this thing's over, you know, yeah. it's a slam yeah. dunk. But yeah, um, maybe it's not. I don't know. Um, not to express too much optimism about <laughs> um, But it's strange that they didn't just say, okay, great, let's do this, you know? Let's process this through. Um, any other thoughts on this or on history? I mean, <laughs> has the court, has the court, these, these conservative courts passed anything? Like, have have, our, have any of these nightmares been realized in the last 10 plus years? Because it seems like like gay marriage, Obamacare, you know, like it does, it does seem like they just kind of bend to what they know would be incredibly, or they would not do something incredibly unpopular. Like they know what people really want. Um, um, or, or, or I mean, gun control stuff. It would yeah, I would say gun control, employment law. It's been really terrible. I mean, the right to private action just to like defend any number of consumer claims um, or prosecute any number of consumer claims. Um, the right to organize hasn't gone well. I mean, this is quite exceptional right. given um, like the court's hostility to unions generally. So. And this court specifically in terms of uh, capital, um, you know, uh death penalty stuff definitely uh right criminal. it's just been kind of waving it all through yeah and we'll see about i mean abortion is obviously really freaky yeah. you know that's the one right that's the so, one. so we'll see much more so i think than affirmative action right like the concerns are about uh row um yeah I th- right i don't know um okay uh we're all done i think okay. so yeah that's a lot all right <laughs> hour and 23 it's gonna be one of our shortest episodes <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening to the show um we do this every week and sometimes twice a week if you'd like to support our show please uh sign up for our newsletter at goodbye.substack.com there for five dollars a month you will get bonus episodes and you'll also get access to our discord server um which you know is the lifeblood of the show um and uh i think that's the right yeah and then um or you can support us at patreon at patreon.com slash ttsg pod if you'd like to reach out to us you can dm us at ttsg pod on twitter or send us an email at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com um, what do we have coming up? Let's see. We have an episode, uh, a conversation that I had with Daryl Owens, who is a housing activist and sort of a YIMBY housing activist here in the Bay Area. We talked about, you know, Berkeley's exclusionary zoning laws. We talked about what is the, re- you know, feasibility, like, is there like a difference? I don't know. It's a very interesting conversation because it basically came down to like, what are these laws, ch- changes in zoning going to actually do, you know? And, um, and what will it take to have affordable housing in Berkeley? And is that possible? And the answer might very well be no, you know, but does that mean that we should stop? Mm. You know, does that mean that we should stop? And then like we talked a bit about the FIMBY movement, which is public housing in my backyard, right? Which is uh, oh, sort Fimby. of put out by like uh, 10, yeah, it's FIMBY. Like fish. <laughs> yeah, fish. I know, it's like, what is that? <laughs> <Fimby>? <laughs> yeah. I think fish I'm FIMBY. Fish in my <laughs> backyard. 
Um, <laughs> playing Divided <Little> Sky, <laughs> 45 minute tweezer in my backyard. Um, the, uh, the, 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 yeah, Fimbiism, we can talk about it after the show comes yeah. out. But yeah, Fimbiism is like a, a luring thing for people on the left to believe in, right? But is it like realistic, right? Like, um, or is it, are it's counter arguments against Yimbiism, which is like essentially that yeah. Yimbiism is like a distraction from Fimbiism. Like, I don't know, I find those types of arguments sometimes hard to swallow because uh, distraction, you know, people are always distracted. But, you know, Fimbiism is obviously what everybody on the left should want. But like, is it, Right. Like, like, come on, are they going to really, right. is their world really going to build public housing in Berkeley, California? Absolutely not. You know, so then what do we do about the housing crisis right now? Um, it, was a good in, it was a good conversation. And, um, you know, maybe some people will find, will start criticizing the show for being like, yeah, you know, like neoliberal. <laughs> I like to what happened. I thought this was a left space. <laughs> um, you know, we have multitudes of opinions. Uh, all right. Well, I will talk to you both next week. Um, anything you guys want to play? This Saturday, we're going to be at the Asian American Writers Workshop. Uh, that's true. Um, and so come listen to that. It's called the Page Turner Conference. And uh, we will be teaching people how to podcast, which might be very ironic. <laughs> 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 that's all I'll say about that. Okay, cool. Talk to you soon. Bye, Andy. Bye.